0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. For the designers working on the Bronco Sport, the challenge was to recreate a vehicle that lives up to a legend.
1: It was such an opportunity. You know, how could you ask for something more exciting than that is to bring back an icon like Bronco.
0: That's exterior designer Dan Kangas. He really likes his job.
1: I probably talk about cars more than my wife would like.
0: (laughs) The Bronco Sport offers the kinds of sophisticated features that you dream of in a modern SUV, like Ford Co-Pilot 360 driver assist technologies. And yet, the look and feel is true to the classic and rugged Bronco heritage.
1: It's like a tool. What's there is only what's necessary.
0: Dan's team closely studied vintage Broncos, and they also attended serious off-road races to spend time with the most dedicated four-wheel drive owners.
1: You're surviving in in a dust cloud, pretty much, watching these vehicles go flying by. It's really insane, but it's getting inspired by the true race vehicles that are out there, because those are the most bare bones stripped-down, honest vehicles there are, right? It gives you a reality check. Okay, well, what can we take out uh, to give people what they need and not what they don't?
0: That approach is how you get elements like the Bronco Sport's one-piece front grille.
1: It doesn't have any chrome adornment. It's a no-frills design. It's just a surface with some perforation for cooling. It can't really get much
0: more simple than that. See the all-new Bronco Sport for yourself at Ford.com Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Last week on this show, as part of our Spring Wild Files series, we told the story of Claire Nelson, who was on a solo hike in Joshua Tree National Park when she fell off a ledge. She was badly injured and ended up spending four days out there lying on the ground in blistering heat, hoping that someone would find her. It was a remarkable story, and it prompted some of you to write in and let us know what a big emotional impact it had on you. Our response to that is, yeah, us too. But then there were other listeners who came to us with a question. If Claire could live for four days in the desert, then, well, just how long? Could someone survive out there? Like, what's the absolute upper limit of what a human can endure? As it happens, we have a long and fascinating answer for you. And it comes in the form of the third-ever episode we created for this show way back in 2016 when we launched with the Science of Survival series that got us started. It was produced by Peter Frick-Wright and Robbie Carver. And I strongly suggest that you take a moment now to fill up a water bottle and keep it on hand as you're listening.
2: There's a path in the desert. It's a worn-in route. There's cactus, creosote, and wagon ruts knifing through soft sand valleys. The mountains on either side are a labyrinth of rocks, then, 130 miles of not much else. We're in southern Arizona, near the border with Mexico, the middle of the Sonoran Desert. It smells like hot. It feels like death. In fact, in the mid-19th century, one writer counted 400 fatalities on this route. Some estimates put the death toll at 2,000 people, almost all from heat stroke and thirst. A tribe called the Tohono O'odá made this path. They used it to hunt. Most everyone else has come looking for gold. In 1540, the Spanish conquistadors used the route to push north in search of an emerald city. They found the journey so dry and dangerous, they called the route El Camino del Diablo. The Devil's Highway. Throughout history, this trail has treated many crossers like a cat treats a mouse, toying with them, letting them get close to their destination, without actually making it. In the 1890s, three prospectors were found dead at Tanajas Altas, a camp where rain accumulates in a series of rock basins, 15,000 gallons of it. But if the lower pool is empty, you have to climb to reach the next one, and these prospectors didn't have the strength. They died of thirst just yards from a drink, their fingers worn to the bone from trying to crawl up the rock. The survey crew that found them noted 50 similar graves nearby. Thirst was a tricky nemesis. Some travelers laid down to die. Others could stagger for days. Most lost their minds for lack of water. Survivors couldn't report back what had even happened. But then, one day in 1905 out here in the Sonoran Desert, a scientist named W.J. McGee got a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to observe the process of dehydration. And the framework he came up with is still useful today. The story of how he got it, however, is almost unbelievable. In this episode of The Science of Survival, we bring you a story from the Devil's Highway. And to tell it, producer Robbie Carver and I talked to Julian Smith.
1: All right, why don't we start with you just introducing yourself So, your name and freelance, whatever
2: you like to be known as.
3: I'm Julian Smith. I'm a writer. I write about science and travel and conservation and the outdoors.
2: Julian used to live in New Mexico and is a bit of a connoisseur of incredible historical desert stories. A southwestern survival sommelier, if you will.
3: Basically, yeah.
2: And one day he turned up this paper called Desert Thirst as Disease.
3: And the way I I found out about it is through a paper about this paper, which was written by this guy named Bill Broyles.
4: Yeah, my name is Bill Broyles, and I live in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, I'm a retired high school English and PE teacher. Self-described desert rat. And on the side, I, I try to write a little bit about the desert to share my experience.
2: Which is understating it a bit. He's written many articles and several books about the desert.
0: So where does this story start?
3: So it starts back in 1905 in southern Arizona
4: scrubby desert uh, cactus country.
3: And this scientist named W.J. McGee was out in the middle of nowhere.
2: William John McGee was a self-taught geologist, anthropologist, and writer. He was just finishing up a year as president of the National Geographic Society and was currently the president of the American Anthropological Association. So, in other words, a real scientist.
4: So they're out at this place called Tenajas Altas... He was studying climate, ostensibly, but he was really taking a vacation, I think.
3: And so they're hanging out. It's mid-August, probably about, I think, August 14th.
4: And one day into their camp, two
3: prospectors came. And one of the guys' name is Pablo Valencia. He's about 40. And his buddy, Jesus Rios, he's a little older. He's in his 60s. And they're kind of your garden variety, uh, badass desert prospectors, you know.
2: Middle-aged, but savvy, needs to the desert.
3: And they're going out to look for gold.
4: They were going to go to this, this what they call the gold ledge. You know, people will do anything for gold.
3: And they have food for a week, but they only have six gallons of water.
2: For two people in that heat, that'll last about a day and a half.
4: Most days in August out there, it's probably over 100, sometimes 110 or 115. So sure enough, that same day, so they left around four in the
3: morning, and about midnight, uh, Rios comes back, the older guy, and...
4: He said, oh, we need more water.
2: Wait, so after only one day?
3: (laughs) Not even one day. One of them is back for more water.
4: And Pablo went on to the ledge. So
3: uh, Rios grabs another five gallons, and he sets back out again to meet up
4: with Valencia. And it's August. And
3: he's back really soon again, saying, I couldn't find him. You know, I went out to where we were supposed to meet up, and he wasn't there.
4: It's a very hard country to see anybody in. You know, a quarter mile away, you'd, you'd probably miss them if they were standing there waving at you. So
3: McGee is, you know, still sitting here doing his science thing in his camp. So he sends his helper guy out. He called him Papago Jose. He was a, a local Indian. And Jose stumbles back like a day later, basically saying, no, I couldn't find him. And I barely made it back myself. And so by this point, yeah, Valencia's been out for three days with two gallons of water, and everybody is just assuming, you know, he's got to be dead. There's no way anybody can survive out there, no matter how tough
4: they are. So Pablo was at that rendezvous point, and he had to decide what to do. Should I go back the same trail I came, but now I'm I'm miles away from that? Do I go up to a place called Tully Well and try to find water there? Do I go back to McGee's camp and how fast can I get there, considering the fact that I've, I've now run out of water?
3: He, uh, he just starts wandering, basically.
4: And it's, it's wide open country, the wind blows, uh, the sky at night is gorgeous, but there's not much shelter. It's a place you can walk 10 or 15 miles in a straight line without deviating hardly at all. Some of the trees are, you might think of as more of a parasol, uh, where you really couldn't stretch out underneath because there wouldn't be enough... Uh, uh, room to get your whole body into the shade. You know, the, the sand, of course, picks up that heat and re-radiates it back at night, as do the rocks and the mountains. So there's really no cool place to hide out.
2: And at this point in the story, Broyles becomes a particular authority on Valencia's experience. Because back in 1978, he decided to see if he could use McGee's article to figure out where Valencia went. And he went out there, retraced his path
4: and I had cached water ahead of time and it was buried under sand at the base of a very distinctive tree. But when I got there, the darn thing was dry. An inquisitive coyote had dug that up. It was probably the happiest coyote in the state of Sonora. So I'm faced with this this dry cache of water and it's about 105 to 108 degrees and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and I realize that, that I'm about to die of thirst. I've become the person I'm looking for. I've become Pablo Valencia.
2: Broyles had been to this area before and remembered the general direction of a nearby ranch, but he was out of water and already dehydrated. He had 10 miles to go in a place that could strike you down yards from a water source. The question was simply, would he make it?
4: So I waited in the shade of a tree, out of water, and then I abandoned all my possessions, my backpack, my wallet, and everything.
2: Meanwhile, back in 1905, it's likely that Valencia had also polished off the last of his water and was in a similarly slow, steady race against the desert. Out here, extreme dehydration means death by heat stroke. A human body has to stay between 98 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In 100 plus degree temperatures though, sweat is the only way that it can cool down. A body will drain itself of fluid trying to stay in that temperature range. As you sweat, a loss of even 1% of your body's water can start to cause minor problems. But at that point, you're not even all that thirsty. At two to four percent fluid loss, the body feels fatigue, headache, and thirst. It's sometimes called a case of the blaws. At five to six percent loss, the pulse quickens as the heart has trouble pumping thicker blood. Decreased circulation leads to even more fatigue. The headache gets worse. The thirst becomes terrible. It's still considered mild dehydration.
3: His general plan is to kind of make a rough circle back to where this camp was, the Tanahas Altas. Um, He was quickly drinking his own urine. He was saving it in his canteen. And, you know, pretty soon that stopped. His body has, has no more water left.
2: As you lose water, your core temperature elevates and you pass through the stages of heat stroke. At this point, you're past heat stress and heat fatigue. Now comes heat syncope, where blood vessels dilate in an attempt at cooling and your face goes pale or maybe you faint from a lack of oxygen to the brain. Then heat cramps. Your muscles ache, you stumble and fall, you're exhausted. Your skin feels like sandpaper, it's never been more sensitive. At 8% fluid loss, your body stops producing saliva and you cannot spit words stick in your mouth. At 10%, the brain becomes disoriented and misfires. You're starting to lose your mind.
4: I, I went straight line and, and uh, was following a cow path, so I thought I could get someplace, but then I wasn't sure that it was a cow path. The mind plays very strange tricks on somebody when you get in a, in a perilous situation like that
3: as his mind started to go off the rails as he was going through this experience, he became convinced that his buddy Rios had abandoned him on purpose so he could get the gold that they were out looking for. So he he's kind of latched onto this revenge fantasy. Like, he said, like, I'm going to get back if on, only if I can kill this guy for leaving me out here to die.
4: I'd be willing to kill someone. I'd be willing to kill you if I thought I could get water from you. The, the problem is that when you get to that stage you're so you're so exhausted you can't raise your arm to kill anybody it, it's like having two broken legs and two broken arms and just, you just you, when you get to the end of it you can't move and I was getting to that point
2: at 12 percent fluid loss the body can no longer sweat to cool itself the air is like a 120 degree fever pressing in from the outside but now you're hallucinating on the edge of unconsciousness. Maybe you're stark raving mad, maybe just confused. When your core temperature reaches 105 degrees, you're near the tipping point where your body's cellular metabolism will accelerate, generating even more heat. You'll lose consciousness and begin to convulse on the ground. Proteins in your muscles will break down and distort. Hemorrhaging inside your internal organs will cause your circulatory system to trigger the blood clotting mechanism. Sludgy blood will coagulate inside your veins and arteries. You'll be completely unaware that your brain is essentially cooking itself.
3: At this point, he's basically crawling on his hands and knees. He's too, he's too wiped out to even walk.
4: You know, dying is easy. Most people simply lie down very peacefully and uh, pass.
2: If the outside temperature is not so extreme that your body overheats, however, it is possible to lose even more water. As the body passes 12% fluid loss, it shunts blood to the vital organs. The extremities feel cool to the touch. You become functionally cold-blooded, at the mercy of the ambient air. Some die of hypothermia on 50-degree nights. Nighttime temperatures in the Sonoran Desert, however, often hover between 98 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit, right where the body wants to be.
3: So uh, and then, so towards the end, he just lays down and gives up and uh, kind of sees his, you know, the classic, sees himself lying there. He's, he's just gone. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to make it. But uh, then it cools down again at night and somehow he's back in his body and he's just, he won't let himself quit. He's just pushing and pushing.
2: Broyles, too, kept pushing through his fatigue and finally saw a windmill on the horizon. Stumbling toward it, carrying nothing, he hoped someone was home to save his life.
4: And at the ranch, two uh, vaqueros, two cowboys, uh, they poured me cups of coffee and and fed me grapes. And uh, three days later, they took me to town, but I was still wobbly. And if they hadn't have been there, I probably wouldn't be here talking with you today.
2: He'd been out for three days, traveling without water for one but the thing about dehydration is that there's no way to know how close to death he really was.
4: Do You imagine this edge where you, you dare not cross, but you, you'd like to, you know, get up to the edge and look over and see kind of what it looks like and what does it feel to get there. But the, the insidious thing about it, guys, is that, that you don't know how close the edge is. It's, it's like walking toward a, a precipice at night you kind of shuffle your feet and you're feeling for the edge and you sort of think you can distinguish light from dark, but you don't know where, where the exact edge is.
2: That's why there are so many stories of people succumbing to dehydration on a day hike just a few miles from the trailhead or highway.
4: For example, a, um, a guy four or five miles from my house here in Tucson year, several years ago, um, he died laying on a chase lounge beside his swimming pool. He had evidently been tired, or or had an extra martini, laid down on his chase lounge, and basically cooked himself to death next to twenty thousand gallons of water. It's it go, it goes incredibly fast, incredibly fast.
2: Except when it doesn't.
0: If you could hand pick a team to create the ultimate adventure SUV. There's one type of person you gotta choose, a bicycle nut. All my bikes are in the basement because, you know, there's not enough room in the garage. Meet Dong Park, exterior design manager for the all-new Ford Bronco Sport. Dong has a lot of bikes. So I have close to maybe 11 bikes, the last time I counted, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Not surprisingly, Dong's expertise came into play when the team was working to maximize the gear storage of the Bronco Sport, which is why you can fit two 27.5-inch wheel mountain bikes side-by-side in the cargo space thanks to the safari-style roof. That's an absolute must for the design of this vehicle. I don't need to go through the rigmarole of putting the bike on top of the roof and then forgetting it. That's when you drive straight into your garage at the end of the day, right? (laughs) It's not fun. I've seen a lot of YouTube videos actually Dong brought a bike into the studio as they refined the cargo configuration. And the team traveled to Ford's testing grounds to run through packing scenarios for camping, bike trips, and more. Because that's how you build an SUV that delivers what people really need. Learn more about the all-new Bronco Sport at ford.com bronco. Available Ford accessories. Recreational equipment not included. Limited availability dealer for available inventory stock
3: so this was this all happened between basically august 14th and august 16th so this three-day period and everybody's just saying well that's the last that's the last we'll ever see of valencia he's gone no use even going out and look for him anymore and so six days later around dawn McGee and his buddy uh, they're woken up uh, first thing in the morning by this crazy noise horrible
4: bellow first thing in the morning
3: deep guttural roaring or moaning
2: McGee wrote that he was dreaming of a bull bellowing at a herd of cows
3: and he wakes up and him and Jose are both like wait did you hear that too (laughs) And like yeah so they go out and look and under a tree it's Valencia so he basically went almost, I think, 120 miles in eight days on foot. And he is pretty much about as close to dead as it's possible to be.
4: His skin was burned from the sun, and his tongue was swollen, and his eyes had a glassy stare, and his face was shrunken from dehydration. And He's
3: completely naked. He's almost completely blind and deaf. They can barely find a pulse. They say there's basically no pulse beyond his elbows and his knees. So his body is... Like 90% shut down. Uh, Punctured by cactus spines. He's covered in these gouges and cuts, but they're not bleeding because his blood is so thick from the moisture he's lost that his body won't even bleed. It's like he's got motor oil in his veins or something. There's this one part of the description uh, that he writes up. Just this part, he says, His lips had disappeared as if amputated, leaving low edges of blackened tissue his teeth and gums projected like those of a skinned animal, but the flesh was black and dry as a hank of jerky. His nose was withered and shrunken to half its length, the nostril lining showing black. His eyes were set in a winkless stare.
2: Jeez. Yeah, I can't... I, when you read that, I, it's like an Egyptian mummy.
3: Yeah, yeah, basically uh, a cross between an Egyptian mummy and a walking piece of beef jerky. It's, it's kind of unimaginable to believe that he was, he was still alive.
4: And so what McGee did is he gave him a little uh, chicken fricassee, a little broth, uh, a little whiskey, and a little uh, nitroglycerin to try to get his, his his heart working better, to get back to a regular heart rate.
3: They, you know, they give him water. He can't. He's so far gone. He can't really, basically, even drink. Like his body can't even handle water at first. But they kind of rub it on his skin, and they. He said they just his skin just soaks up the water, like almost like a sponge. And so over the next few days, his body kind of like starts to come back to life it took him about a week to get his health back they went back to Yuma which is the nearest city and uh, there's not really any news about what happened to him after this experience but uh, McGee did describe how his hair was had gone grey he used to he started out with pretty much a full head of hair of dark hair and by the time he made it back and, rec- and recovered his hair was half gone and it was grey which was,
1: it's like he saw a ghost
3: <laughs> basically basically almost died and came back to life um, and he also, another thing he uh, he writes about is a few days after they got back to Yuma, uh, Valencia basically spent an entire day deliberately and methodically devouring watermelons just all day.
2: So he's out there like he must just be dreaming about a bushel of watermelons. Right. And so he actually goes and does that.
4: Yep. Yeah. So that's the story that he rescued this guy and wrote this great paper about pablo valencia
3: which is one of the really the first scientific efforts of describing severe dehydration and what happens to people and every time you get somebody who's looking really closely at dehydration especially the historical aspects everybody mentions this paper desert thirst as disease this is kind of one of the classic like watershed moments in the study
4: yeah he, he was mcgee was a pretty good guy um but but there's there's another mystery of the story that, that you may not know, if you'd like me to tell you I can. Yes. Um, the story Desert Thirst as Disease was published...
2: Boyle says that when McGee it. got back to civilization, he published two papers, Desert down. Thirst as Disease, which we've been talking about, and another one called The Desert Cure, that was actually published first. And in that first paper, there's a very similar story of two prospectors wandering into camp, heading out to the desert, stumbling back five days later and McGee, an McGee nursing them back to health. You're august, which, if your broils, starts to make you think. Maybe the Valencia story isn't strictly true. Maybe he was only out five days, not eight. Can you articulate why you are suspicious of the Valencia story? First of all, I have not been able to find field notes.
4: And uh, I would like to read the field notes, which would help settle the matter. I think, but I can't prove it that those two stories have been conflated, and the Valencia story is made out to be more than it actually was at the time. But that's, you know, for future scholars to figure out, or somebody that finds the field notes.
2: Yeah, okay. And are there, are there reasons to think that it is true?
4: Well, part of what I went to do was to test the route and see if that would take them to a, to a lava ledge that uh, might have gold, and see if Pablo could walk that distance back to McGee's camp. And uh, I have done that. I didn't do it all on the one trip, but I've done it on, on several trips. And it can be done. You know, what? physically what they said they did is, is physically uh, possible.
3: In this paper that he wrote, McGee had a, a few uh, theories as to why Valencia could have survived something like this. Most normal people are done after a day or two or three in the desert. He he asked himself like why why did this guy Valencia survive and so he had a few ideas he thought well first of all he was tough he knew what he was doing he was in the he was familiar with the desert he was strong he there was there was some cloud cover and it wasn't too hot only two of the days was the temperature over 105 degrees you know so it was in it was in the low hundreds which was which was you know not that bad for the Sonoran Desert in August so you think that actually helped you know it
2: could have been worse. He was also extremely motivated not just to survive but to get back and kill his friend
1: so so the secret to surviving dehydration is
2: vengeance yeah.
3: <laughs> right you see mad max you know right it's like fury road out there you gotta, you gotta have somebody to fight against very slow fury road. right yeah <laughs> fury crawl
2: Why has Valencia's story, you know, why did you write about it? Why is it stuck with people?
4: I really wish that it hadn't. Partly because of my uneasiness over the length of time that Pablo Valencia was out there. Uh, I wish it hadn't stuck people because I think it gives them some false hope.
3: The whole idea of Valencia surviving what he did is so out there. It's so towards the edge of what anybody can imagine that, I mean, it's... Unbelievable is, is kind of the word, you know. I, mean, I did some other research this week on like how like documented cases have how long people have survived. And there's been there's been a, a few of people surviving a week in similar conditions, like with nothing, with no water at all. So it it can happen. But
2: do you have a gut feeling of what happened?
3: Yeah, I think something horrible happened to Pablo Valencia <laughs> Definitely. That's how many, over how many days it happened. I don't know. I mean, I think five days probably would have been just as horrible as eight. Really. I'd love to hear what happened to him afterwards and how he was changed, but he just kind of went back to prospecting and he was, he went back out (laughs) too. Who knows? I mean, maybe Valencia was one of those one in a million people and he just, he survived something that nobody else could have.
0: This episode was produced by Peter Frick-Wright and Robbie Carver. Music and sound design by Jonathan Hirsch. Thanks to writer Julian Smith for the story. If you missed our recent episode about Claire Nelson's survival saga and Joshua Tree for the Wild Files series, I strongly recommend listening to it. You can find it in our feed with the title, Alone and Injured in the Wild, or by going to our complete Wild Files catalog, at outside online slash wildfiles. This episode was sponsored by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available goat modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at ford.com slash bronco.